everybody, and welcome to Enjoy the View. I'm Tessa, and today on our panel we have Ari Clark. Hello. Ben Hong. Hello. Guest host Vikas Ashoka. Hey, hey. And our special guest for this episode is Henry Zhu. Henry, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah. Hey, Roman. Thanks for letting me on. I guess I'll just say I help maintain Babel, which is a JavaScript compiler. And I also have my own podcast, Hope In Source. And I'm in New York. Are you in New York now? You're back? Yeah, yeah. I am back. (laughs) (laughs) Cool, cool. Welcome back. So you said that you have your own podcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, basically just a podcast where the first, I guess, if you want to call it a season with Nadia Ekbal, and it was just us having a conversation. And then she was like, oh, we maybe should just record it. And it's about like open source and my experience or observational experience with faith communities and how they're similar. I'm not trying to pitch anything. You know, I'm not like a salesperson. It's just like my personal <laughs> thinking about it. And we happen to have a conversation. And she's not religious. So it was an interesting contrast to kind of talk through some ideas about these topics. I was just talking with Maggie Appleton. She was saying how she listened to a few of them. She was saying it was more like anthropology of these things, like cultural analysis, how they're related in terms of like, say, serving the community, um, this idea of internal versus external motivation. There's a lot of things there about like, you know, evangelism, how do we get funding, trust, authority, stuff like that. Maggie Appleton, the art director at Egghead. Mm -hmm, Yeah. I'm curious, Henry, like you kind of outlined what various areas of similarities and differences you see, but like, what do you personally feel is, I think one can imagine plenty of differences, but what do you feel is really similar about your kind of two experiences in faith and open source? I guess I'll first say that even for me, it took a while for me to even see these similarities. I've been a part of a faith community for a long time, and then I've been part of open source. And it's only like in the last few years, I was like, oh, the clues showed up and the pieces came together sort of deal. And I guess this is kind of true for a lot of things. Like when you get into something more in depth, you start to notice different things and it becomes easier to see more and more how things are the same. And so even me bringing it up uh, you know, in public, I guess, or with other people, in talks, it helps me see what other people have noticed too. They're like, oh, I never thought of it that way. It's actually kind of funny, the opposite of trying to explain open source to people that are in my church or just people that are religious is also kind of funny because you'd think that they would understand that idea more, but they're confused, right? They're like, why would you, you know, write code and give it away for free? You know, how do you make money? You know, the same questions that we all have. You just got to bring up the idea. It's like, oh, we're doing it for free, just like, you know, we do that stuff here. Or we're doing it out of grace, you know, not because someone deserves it, just because you want to help people. And I think trying to change that thinking can help people empathize. But then at the end of the day, everyone's still concerned, like, how do you make money? And are you doing okay? And like this kind of stuff. (laughs) You have an interesting history in open source. Maybe we should introduce that. You first got started as a code style checker, writing the table of contents. How did that lead to today as now you're a core maintainer of Babel? Yeah, that's good that you remember that. Um, (laughs) I used to work on this project called JSCS, which is basically deprecated now. If you go to the repo, it's like archived. We merged it with ESLint, which people are probably more familiar with. And actually, the way I even got into that was I uh, just joined like a company out of college. I mean, there's a lot to say, but uh, the short thing is that someone at work was doing open source and they encouraged me to get involved. And so I guess we were using JSCS at work 
and I looked into the repo finally, and then I saw, I guess not the repo for that, but backing up, I think I was learning Angular 1. This was a while ago. I don't remember, like 2014 or something. They had an issue that was like, fix some of our linting stuff. So I did that manually. And they were like, every rule that you need to change is like one commit. And at the time, I never did open source really. You know, it was like you post your projects that you make and you never touch them again as a showcase, right? <laughs> You're not expecting anyone to even look at it, or maybe look at it, but not contribute back for like your resume or something. And so I made all these commits and then I was like, oh, this is great. Because then if they merge it, then my name will go up on that list, you know, the contributors <laughs> list of like all the top people that have, yep. you know, however many commits. That's the kind of thing that I don't care about now. If anything, <laughs> I don't want my name to be up there because then people know that they need <laughs> like to ask you for help. But at the time I was like, no, I really want my name up there for some reason. And that's fine. You know, I think that wanting to do things because you want to be like famous or whatever, like it's not necessarily bad. But I guess my thing was like, well, you get there and you're like, why is this something I wanted in the first place? <laughs> I could go on with that. But basically, that linter, I realized was not that different from compilers. Not to go too technical, but you know, one is checking the code, throwing an error, and the other one is checking the code and then outputting new code. So part of it is mostly the same idea. Mm -hmm. And so I found out about Babel a while after... I contributed to this project specifically called Babel ESLint, which is literally just like a thing that helps those two bridge together. And then that helped me find about Babel and then eventually like found that project. I think Babel 6 came out a little bit before I got involved, like basically just fixing some bugs, writing some docs or something like that. I basically did nothing. And then in the blog post, you know, Sebastian mentioned a bunch of us. So I guess that encouraged me to like get involved more because I felt like I didn't do my part. And so it's funny that you can do that to kind of get people to get into open source, maybe. I don't know if I recommend any of the things that need to be in open source now. So like, say, getting involved in Angular or JSCS, all I needed was someone to encourage me to do it. And then I just went through the horribleness of looking through like issues and like trying to figure <laughs> things out on my own. And the fact that we ask people to do that now kind of sucks. And it's like, there's no mentorship aspect we kind of just say look at the issues or even good first issues that could be its own podcast honestly like people ask that all the time and it's like it takes 20 minutes to come up with one which is fine like i think we want to do this but what are we assuming about that person that makes it a good first issue have they ever even used git before have they used github mm -hmm. do they know the language that you're working in or the project like there's so many assumptions like fixing a typo should maybe be a good first issue for someone that is still learning how to use GitHub, but if they're using the project, maybe a different, like a bug fix might be better. I think maybe one of the problems is that we don't cater or even like specify specifically different kinds of contributors that are coming in. And I think mm -hmm. it's good to differentiate. I think there's a lot to say. It's just in the end, a lot of it is on the maintainer's burden to basically do everything, right? Do the bug fixes, do the releases, do the marketing, do the fundraising, and also get more people. And I think leading into Nadia's book that she just released, this idea of over-participation is really interesting. Her trying to challenge this idea of, oh, the answer to open source is just get more people. Because we've been doing that and trying to do that for a long time. And the answer usually is like, oh, you haven't been trying hard enough. And I think she's just saying, 
maybe we need to kind of step back and reevaluate assumptions that we've had. Nadia, your co-host on the Open Source Podcast. And what's the name of her book? Working in Public, which is a good <laughs> title. <laughs> Just to, like pitch the book a bit. You don't even have to be... Oh, there you go. Ben has it. Ben's waving <laughs> it around. Wow. He's showing off. It's very pretty. I enjoy the hard copy a lot. Yeah, it's by Stripe Press. All their books just look pretty amazing. To pitch the book a bit, it's about open source and it's about her experience being involved in open source, you know, working at GitHub and Protocol Labs and doing research on her own over the last like five years. But also at the end, more pointing to the fact that the problems that we face in open source are not that different from the problems of any online community and even a lot of the problems we deal with now in the current time. What I would call like the neutral public square idea of like, we think everyone's contribution is valuable and that we should do as much as we can to make that thing as open as possible. That's sort of like liberalism politically, like as a whole, right? If you think about open source, you're like, oh, anyone can get involved. Anyone can make an issue, just like anyone can tweet, anyone can make a comment on YouTube. And now some people are realizing like, maybe we don't want that. And it's hard to like fight against that idea. It's like, why wouldn't I want things to be open? Why wouldn't I want to be mm -hmm. welcoming and inclusive? And those are just instinctual things that we have, especially in JavaScript. It's like heresy it just feels bad to even say, I want to say no, or like say no to somebody, right? I think that's what leads to burnout because you're like, think about Twitter. If you have any sort of following on Twitter or anything, you don't have to like email social media notifications, right? Someone texting you, you feel like you have to respond to them immediately. Open source is just one version of that where it just so happens most of the people you respond to are strangers, not even your own friends, right? What should the culture change to? If you want to decrease this problem of over-participation, do you just limit it to only the maintainers? Is there some sort of vetting process? How do you foresee that problem getting solved? Given that it's so broad, there's no like solution. I don't even think that's the right approach approach, I guess, because that makes it sound like there's like an answer. If anything, there has to be like multiple solutions at multiple levels in the sense of every project needs to decide on their own what their boundaries are. Another analogy is like, say, a city or a country. Every place has their own like customs and rules that say you're traveling, you know, you try to adhere to like what people generally do and think and you try to do your research. Isn't that weird that we do that if you go to a different country, but then if you go to a different open source project, you just assume that they're all the same, right? Because they're on GitHub. Mm -hmm. They look the same on GitHub too. You have no idea who the maintainers are. You just say whatever you want. It's sort of like a level of, you could say, respect or just, we have the contributing guide and the code of conduct and stuff like that. But how many people actually look at that? And even the format, like when you go to a different place, you're not reading this document of how to act. Right. You know, people there, you slowly get involved. If I bring up church, like you have to walk in and there's people that welcome you in and you have to walk in usually at a certain time. Right. If it's like on a Sunday morning or something that helps, too, because for the people that are there, it's not like in open source feels like you have to be on call 24 seven because anyone in the whole world can show up at any point in time versus at a church. It's like maybe it's only on Sunday or Friday or whatever day it is. It's like a set time where you know both the people inside and people outside coming in, they both know when that's happening. But in open source, mm -hmm. it's like we just allow anyone to say whatever they want at any point and we have to respond. And so, yeah, maybe practically speaking, that's where people have stuff like office hours or it's like set a time so that people know when to show up 
and it's dedicated instead of just allowing yourself to turn all time into work. Even if you don't do open source, you know, at your job, now that we're at home, you don't have to commute anymore, maybe then, you know, you feel like you have to work more or that other people are asking you to keep your video on, which is weird. It's just to show that you're like doing work or something like that because you need to like micromanage people. I think it's the same problem. You always feel like you can be doing work because the technology enables you to do work, but you can also feel like you can, I guess, play or relax at any point because you can always turn on like YouTube or Twitter at any point too. There's no like distinctions between those two. I'm curious about this concept of comparing it to cities or states. Um, Mm -hmm. It's almost like a citizenship model where you know, not everyone can vote. You have to like be a citizen first, do some basic work to show yeah. that you're committed. I'm curious, because I used to be in politics in a former mm-hmm. life. And a lot of politicians and activists and organizers, they make this distinction even in their own heads of like, this is the public VCOS, this is the private VCOS. And, you know, if you're an activist, for example, you have to be able to sit with your anger, sit with, you know, your emotions on things, but publicly, you know, present a face that might not reflect actually what you're feeling inside because you're leading a group. I'm curious whether that feels like it has any parallels to you as a core maintainer of an open source project. And how do you make sure that you are both taking care of your public persona and the work you do publicly while maintaining of your private self? And I'd also like to add on to Vikas's question, because in your most recent podcast episode, you and Nadia were talking about this almost structurally built in expectation that open source projects are like a welcoming space and the maintainer, it's part of their inherent duty to mm-hmm. create and upkeep that open space, but also contrasted with the idea you brought up of like when people go on GitHub or whatever, they just want to focus on the code to bring up a popular refrain, which to me seems kind of like the two ideas don't really mesh together. So I'm also curious from that perspective about maintaining your private versus the public space. Hmm. There's a lot there. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not even sure where to go with that, honestly. I can chime in for a little bit on this one. One of the challenges, I think, because you bring up an interesting point regarding politics, you have the private and public. But I think in open source, it's all one big thing, right? Like Mm -hmm. if you as the maintainer of a popular open source thing say anything on Twitter, that is a reflection, therefore, on your project. Like It's almost like you cannot divorce them, unfortunately, because you're such in the public eye. And I think that's one of the... Isn't it the same for a politician too? Supposedly. (laughs) But in the way that a politician represents themselves, whereas a maintainer represents usually a team of people. Right. So, you know, whether it comes to the view, for example, in the event I say something like that, not only reflects on me, that reflects on the team as well. Then the framework then gets also a reputation for part of that as well. It's tricky to untangle that. So you're saying that your private self doesn't get to live online in any form? (laughs) Is that what I'm hearing? (laughs) I mean, does that speak to you as true, Henry? I guess it's got to be a little bit of both. I mean, I guess it's true for anyone. You might embrace the idea of trying to be more personal online because it makes people hopefully empathize with you as a person by being more vulnerable. But at the same time, yeah, it does feel like you have to put on a certain kind of face, whatever that means. It doesn't have to be like what people normally think of, but even just the idea of, you know, like if you complain about open source or if you say something negative about it, they're like, well, aren't you a maintainer? You're supposed to like love your job or stuff like that. I mean, that's more of a problem of the platform itself of like, Twitter isn't the best place to say something like that. It just doesn't feel like even just a lot of things that people say, they don't have to be controversial. 
it just doesn't lead to conversation. That's maybe why I like podcasts because you can be a lot more nuanced. You can spend the time to kind of talk through things as an actual dialogue rather than like shouting over each other. And also the other thing is it's public, right? You're posting this podcast publicly, but most likely most people are not even going to listen to it. So the only people that really (laughs) listen to it are people that kind of care and hopefully see you with good faith. I think that's what I'm Mm -hmm. saying. I can try as hard as I can to tweet the podcast, but then most people probably don't care because they're like, oh, this topic doesn't mean anything to me. But if I tweeted it with some hot take or whatever, which I never do, (laughs) then you probably get a lot of responses. But it's like, I don't want responses or people just saying cool, but like there are real problems that we're facing and I have a hard time really thinking through them other than through one-on-one. And part of me is always like, oh, I want to just tweet this and hope that all these people respond. They can have all these conversations, but it's better to just find someone one-on-one and just talk to them about it. Well, with the podcast, we're all kind of... Go ahead, Beth. I heard you say something. Was that a glitch? Uh, I better tell oh, you. I, think that was me, I don't know what happened. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Henry. Men all sound the same. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Should keep that in there. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it's that'll be the whole episode. <laughs> I don't know. I, Tessa, I don't. I don't think Henry was actually saying anything. So I think you should say yeah. your thing. So, like with the podcast, we're all kind of live with you, right? Like we're as live as we can be right now, I guess. So I'm curious because to your church example, my mall has a code of conduct when you enter. I don't know if anybody reads it, but I'm curious if you think there's also just something from atmospherically being in the same room physically with other people that they kind of, even if there isn't an official established code of conduct, we're using body language or other non-text or non-verbal means of communication to kind of infer and imply like how people should behave in a space or like the rules for communing in a space versus like open source where it's mostly through look at me pretending I know what it's like to work in open source like comments I'm guessing and like (laughs) discord or something I don't know I opened one issue and then I tried to resolve my issue and and then marked it as good first issue and I was like I see that shade then but (laughs) however people communicate on open source I'm guessing it's mostly like asynchronous and through text I'm curious if you think that the in-person quality contributes to that, whether it's to add to it or take away? I mean, it can definitely take away, but I would hope that it's something that adds because, you know, why do people love, I mean, you talk about meetups and conferences so much and now we can't do them or they're online at the hallway track, stuff like that. I mean, I'm assuming if you walk into a church and you want to, right, you're not forced to, (laughs) you have some level of respect for the place, I guess, and hopefully the people. And you assume that there are people there that want to at least talk to you about what your curiosity with it is and one of the episodes we had was called membership and so i kind of brought up this idea of some Mm -hmm. churches have membership and so that's not that different from like i guess citizenship and just saying that it's not because we don't want people to be able to do whatever they want in the freedom to do these things but you're not invested enough to even care about some things anyway and so it's just not something you need to expose everyone open source i think has the same thing where there's this assumption every single thing you do has to be in public. And I think people mm-hmm. that are not maintainers are always wondering, why did you do this thing in secret? And I mean, Vue is a good example of people complained, right? <laughs> Vue 3 was done in secret, whatever that means, behind the doors or whatever. And I think that as a maintainer, it makes sense. If you're trying to make something, especially if it's a new thing, like a breaking change or a completely different way of thinking about it, you don't want to distract people with their current work and what they're using it for. You're still thinking through yourself. 
like what's supposed to happen. And all these other people don't have a lot of context into what you're thinking. It's just sort of like when you're making a project for the first time, a lot of people don't open source it until it's like ready, right? Like 1.0. It's pretty rare for someone to be like, I'm literally coming up with this idea right now. I'm going to open source it now. I'm taking contributions. It just doesn't make sense. So why are we okay with that when people are making a project for the first time? But if you're kind of redoing some ideas in the existing project, it's not okay. Actually, I see the same problem with funding too, where some people have been experimenting with this idea of, I will open source this project once I get enough crowdfunding to everyone. So it's sort of like, once I hit this limit, then it'll be open source. But before that, everyone has to kind of chip in. That seems pretty successful because it's something that doesn't exist. So people are willing to pay for it, sort of like a Kickstarter. But if we said... This sounds crazy, right? Like if we said Babel 8 will only come out if we get this much money, then people will say we're like keeping it hostage or something because it's not even written yet. And we're just saying that we need to be sustained and someone's paying for the labor of maintaining the project, even if there are no features, honestly. That's another thing I was thinking about too, is like, in a way, people should be paid just to like literally look over the project, even if no features are added because, you know, fixing bugs creating documentation, all those things cost time. And I think um, maybe one of the problems with the way we do things now, especially in JavaScript, is adding more and more features because people need more and more customization. So we have more and more code, more and more options. I mean, just look at Babel, I guess. Great example. Everyone (laughs) thinks it's so complicated, and it is. And instead, we should be thinking about how to remove options and make things simpler. But the incentive is to add things because it's easier to tweet about or market and spending the time to think of an actually better solution that's like simpler takes a long time that doesn't have output. And so I think as a maintainer, you're like, well, I don't see the benefit of this. And so I'd rather fix a bug because it makes me feel better that I did something incrementally. And I think that's a struggle that's really hard to get over. This is true in any job, right? Mm-hmm. Fixing bugs might be easier mm-hmm. than trying to refactor or just literally come up with something new. And then now that I'm kind of in a role where I'm not really writing as much code. I'm always thinking like, am I even doing anything? Like, what am I even doing for the project? You know, like being a leader, quote unquote, like going on podcasts, talking to people that supposedly has nothing to do with code from the outside. But to me, it says a lot about the whole like open source is not about code. It's about other things. Yeah. I feel like that sounds so exhausting to have to do everything in public like the world's worst spell check as soon as you start typing a word and it's like well did you mean this other word (laughs) and that's it for this week's episode join us next week to hear more from henry and until then enjoy the view